and uh, he had fallen through a window. Uh, if you read the, you can read up in the chapter starting at the beginning if you want. But he had fallen through a window and was injured. Now, how you fall through a window, I don't know, but I guess it can happen. And so he fell out of a second-story window in the palace in Samaria and was injured. And so was worried about it. So he had was wondering if he was going to live or die. And so he had uh, gotten some of his servants together and dispatched them to go to a place called Ekron. And they were supposed to go there to ask the local god there whether or not he was going to live or die. Now, presumably, they were also supposed to uh, pray to this god for healing or whatever else was going to happen. But, uh, again, this was the king of Israel. He is, the, the palace was in Samaria at that time, and so, uh, but he was sending servants to this foreign god, to this foreign place, and the name of the god was, you ready? Baal-zebub. <laughs> now, that probably sounds a little familiar uh, to some of you. Um, in the New Testament, you hear that word, and we would uh, pronounce it, or it would be understood by us as Beelzebub. And he would be known as the Prince of Demons. So, uh, that was what the Pharisees had accused Jesus of doing his miracles by, was by the power of Beelzebub, the Prince of Demons. So, the King of Israel sending his servants to Ekron, to inquire of and pray to a god named Beelzebub is probably not a good thing. Uh, because the same demonic power that the Pharisees and the people of Israel understood in the days of Jesus was also understood in these days that this was a demonic being. Uh, a lot of times you think, oh, well, they're just carved images. Well, there's something behind the carved image. And in this case, this is a spirit that was behind the carved image that they were going to inquire of and pray to. So, an angel spoke to Elijah and told him what was going on. And so, Elijah went and intercepted these servants, these messengers that were going to Ekron. So he stops them and he inquires of them what they're doing and why and all of that. The angel, I'm sure, had already told him. And they told him they were going to inquire for the king and, and that they were going to pray for the king. And Elijah clarifies that and says, okay. And so they ask him and, and Elijah says that he asked this question. And I want you to hear this question. I want you to think about this question. Elijah asked these servants, he says, Is there no God in Israel? In other words, you're going to Ekron to inquire of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, whether or not the king's going to live. I mean, the king sent them, but you're going there and you're going to pray to this God, the prince of demons, for the king. And Elijah wanted to know from them, he said, Is there no God in Israel? In other words, do we not have a faith here? 
Do we not have a God here? And so, they, they came to their senses, in, a, in I guess in some way, and so they asked Elijah, they said, well, well, what's the answer? Is he going to live or is he going to die? And Elijah said, well, he's going to die. The king's going to die. And so the servants went back and they told the king. Well, that made the king angry. Because that's not what he wanted to hear. What he wanted to hear was that he was going to be fine and everything was going to be good. But that's not what the word was. The word was that he was going to die. And so he sends a garrison of troops out to arrest Elijah and to bring him in. And so if you read the story, you see that the garrison of troops, they went out, and the first garrison, the commander of the garrison was a bit rude and demanding and told Elijah, the king demands that you come down here. Now what I want you to see here are two things. One, pride, and another, demanding. And so fire was sent from heaven and consumed them all. So the king sent another garrison of troops and another rude commander. To, it worked so good the first time. They said he sent him again, still prideful and still demanding, even more demanding. And fire fell from heaven and consumed them all. So then the king sent a third garrison to go get Elijah. And so as you read through this passage, and we'll look at what happens after that, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but it's kind of interesting that there's, there's a couple things I want you to think about with this. The, the first is that question, is there no God in Israel? And I'm going to ask that question in relation to where we live. Now, we're, we're not necessarily consulting the prince of demons. Not necessarily. But I have known Christians to do certain things that I would consider to be demonic. That's just me. Like, uh, if you consult a Ouija board, I consider that demonic. If you consult, and if you consult a horoscope, I consider that demonic. Uh, there, there are lots of things like that that are in our world that are devil-inspired and devil-empowered. And so I encourage you, don't do that. Because there's a God in Israel. There's a God in Syracuse. There's a God on Westcott. And, and for much of our existence as a church, we used to be right beside a, a place that was a home to and hosted coven of witches. And, and there were those that would go and, and want to ask about whatever to inquire. When I was in Fredonia, there was a big community of uh, mediums and spiritists that were just up the road. And I mean by community, I mean they had their own village, they had a fire department, and they had a post office. But it was a whole community of mediums and spiritists, one of the largest in the world. And people would want to inquire of a medium or a spiritist to find out, 
Oh, did my Uncle Bob make it to heaven? Did Aunt Susie, is she okay? Because she died ten years ago, or whatever it would be. And so they, they, they would inquire, they'd want to inquire of that. And so there's all these weird kind of demonic temptations out there. But the question always needs to come back, is there a God on Westcott? Yeah, there is. Is there a God in Syracuse? Yeah, there is. And so I would take that uh, just even another step as we kind of step away from talking about the demonic to talking about maybe the everyday things of life where we go first. If you're sick, is there a God in Syracuse? And does He heal? If there's a God in Syracuse and He heals, then I would encourage you that the first place to go is to Him. Is there a God in Syracuse? Does He provide? If you're in need of something, I'd go to Him first. Is there a God in Syracuse that brings peace? If you need peace in your life, I'd go to Him first. Is there a God in Syracuse that gives out wisdom? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. He'll be given freely. If you need wisdom about something, can I suggest, can I encourage you to go to the God who's in Syracuse first to get that wisdom and ask Him for it and see. And, and if you're understanding me, and I hope you are, we serve a God that is active. We serve a God that cares about our lives. We serve a God that is aware of our circumstances. We serve a God that's aware of who we are, where we're at, what we're doing. He's aware of the things going on in our lives. He's aware of all those things. And He's living and He's active right now and He's near us. And so, somewhere along the line, we need to retrain our thought, we need to retrain the way that we see things, we need to retrain the way that we react to things, and look to that living God who is close. And let Him be our first stop. Let Him be our first place that we go when something goes wrong. Let Him be the first place we go when when we need something. Let Him be the first place that we go when we're looking for something. Whether it's healing or, or, or wisdom or whatever it might be that we need in our life, provision that we might need in our life, let Him be the first stop for that. Interestingly, the king who should know better, especially the king of a theocracy, which is what Israel is, that the king would go somewhere else just to start with. And and then even after he went somewhere else just to start with, heard from God by God's grace and didn't like what he had to say. So what's he going to do? Pick a fight? Which is what he does. He picks a fight. So, he sends out these garrisons to go after Elijah. And the Bible tells us that Elijah was sitting on top of a hill. And so these garrisons came up to the hill. There are 51 men in the garrison. 51 in each one. There's 50 men plus the leader. 
And so the first one came up, again, prideful and demanding. And this is what they said, man of God, the king says, come down. So they speak to him, identify him as a man of God, and then give him a command to come down. Fire came from heaven and devoured them all. Because that's just not how it works. And I would suggest, and we're going to see this over a few times here, but I would suggest that Elijah called down fire from heaven not for his own protection or safety. He wasn't worried. I don't think he was worried about that. It didn't appear that he was really worried about his protection. It didn't really appear that he was worried about his own safety. He he called down, it wasn't out of fear. Or it wasn't out of, because it, there was a personal insult, that he was personally offended at the way they were talking to him. And I say those two things, that it wasn't a personal insult, that he wasn't personally offended the way they were talking to him, it wasn't out of fear, because motive is important. Our motives, when we look at what God's doing, our motives when we come into line with God's purposes, plan, when we come into line with what He has for our lives, our motives matter for any exercise of any power, any exercise of any gift, any exercise of anything that God wants us to do. I don't care whether it's sitting and teaching, I don't care whether it's preaching, whether it's laying on of hands for healing, Whatever it is, motive matters. What's going on in here actually matters and is important to this. And so, not out of fear, not out of personal offense or insult, but there was a proof of his mission and his call and his office and his authority. And that's what was being proven here. That that fire was sent down from heaven to show those things. Not, not some insult and not some, some, oh, I'm scared and this is gonna be the answer to that. It's not, it wasn't motivated by those things. But it was a proof of who Elijah was. And it was a proof of his authority. And kind of interestingly, it was by divine leading only. Because uh, you see, uh, Jesus, in the same, in a similar circumstance, said no. Somebody look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And verse 54. And what did Jesus say right after that? But he turned and rebuked them. Yeah. Now, if you if you read before, what had just happened? You can just tell me. The village didn't uh, did receive Jesus and his disciples. Right. So they didn't want what he was offering. Right? And so what do you think the motivation of that was? Uh, 
Yeah. Pride. Could have been. Probably. There's at least a mix of pride in that. So, is that a good motivation? No. Motives matter. Motives matter. And it says, oh, well, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them all? Jesus rebuked them for it. Didn't just say no, but literally, he just rebuked them for it. Because, you know, and whose idea was it? Was it Jesus' idea? Call down fire from heaven? Whose idea? James and John, right? Sons of Thunder. It was the Sons of Thunder's idea to call down fire from heaven and consume all those people. That wasn't God's idea. That wasn't Jesus' idea. So, you have a different circumstance there, don't you? Which would be more in line with probably what we face most days. What do we face most days? We get frustrated, right? Or, or we get our pride rises up, or we get rejected and we get hurt, or, or whatever it would be. That, that's more in line with what we would normally face in our everyday life. And I think it's important, and this is what I want you to hear, that they're like, okay, well, you know, they knew the story of Elijah. They knew that. They knew the story of these garrisons. They knew the story that he called down fire from heaven and consumed them all. They knew this story. And so they wanted to apply that to their life because they were frustrated. They wanted to apply that to their life because they were, they were prideful and, and they were, whatever, rejected. And Jesus rebuked them for that. It's like, that's not, you don't understand. And so in our daily lives, this, this isn't something that happens, all right? Because initiated uh, here, God initiated this. God sent Elijah to do this. God put Elijah in this circumstance. This was something that God was saying. And so, importantly to this, is that this is something that was being authored by God and not by Elijah. So, James and John needed to calm down. And I'm sure if Jesus wanted to call down fire from heaven, he would have. But from what we know about Jesus and, and what we know about the grace and the mercy that he is and the love that he is, Calling down fire from heaven is probably fairly doubtful. Unless it was on the money changers in the temple. But even then, he just turned over their tables and drove them out. So, understand that. And understand what we're talking about here. And that's something that God was establishing in these days for this time with Elijah in this circumstance. But there's lessons to be learned from this in understanding the, the God that we serve. And if you don't get anything else out of this, the question, is there no God in Israel, should be a question that we ask ourselves sometimes. That when we catch ourselves turning to something else that's familiar, instead of turning to God when we have a need that should be a question that comes up in our heart and comes to our mind. Is there no God on Westcott? Is there no God in Syracuse or DeWitt or wherever you live? Is there no God? Is there no God in New York? Well, there is a God in New York. 
and he's active, and he's living, and he's powerful. And let's turn to him first. Before we turn to any other action, let's turn to him first. Before we look to any other Savior, let's turn to him. Because he's ready, and he's willing. And so motivation in our life matters when it comes to the things of God. Motivation matters. What drives us? What leads us? And when you look at it and you examine and you know your motives are bad, you're probably in a bad spot to be making any big decisions. If your motives are selfish, if your motives are out of hurt, if your motives are out of fear, if your motives are any way out of desperation, you're probably in a bad spot to be making any big decisions. And you should probably reconsider that. And when it comes right down to it, all the great things that ever happen in the Bible and all the great things that happen in our lives have one reason behind them, and that's because God says to do it. And that's it. And if he doesn't say to do it, and we don't have that direction, and we don't have that leading, you're rolling the dice. You're rolling the dice. And more times than not, more times than not, you do something that you'll regret at some point. So by divine leading only. You see, Ahaziah had challenged God by sending the 51 men. And so the question is, who's stronger? Who's stronger? Because why do you need 51 men to arrest one guy. Why? Yeah. You're trying to you're just show a strength, right? Why do you need 51 men to arrest one person? Yeah. You're trying to show something. You're trying to intimidate. And so he sent those 51 men to intimidate. He sent those 51 men as a show. And all the people that saw those 51 men coming down the road and all the people that knew they were coming after Elijah, all the people that knew that they were going to be there. Now you think about it. How did word get back to Ahaziah that the first 51 had been consumed by fire? How do you think? Because none of them went back and told him. They were dead. Well, there were people. And that was that's what he was trying to do. He wanted to show. He wanted to show his strength. He wanted to show his power. He wanted to show that he wanted a show of intimidation that he's gonna go and he's gonna arrest Elijah. And so he had sent fifty one of his troops, he sent a garrison of troops to arrest one guy. Fifty-one guys marching down the road is going to attract some attention. wonder where they're going, what they're doing. 
remember when I was a kid, we, you know, we'd be out and it was during the Vietnam War, we'd be out riding our, our bicycles in town. And I remember one day we were out riding our bikes in town and a helicopter flew over really close to the ground. I mean, like 100 feet up or less, really close to the ground, probably less than that. Super loud. I mean, you could feel some of the wash. It was so close to the ground when it passed over us. You know what we did? Guess. No, we got on our bikes and followed it. Yeah. And we followed it right down the road. It was going straight down the road that I lived on. And we followed it, followed it, followed it, went down that road, and it landed in a field at the end of the road. That was awesome. But there's something about that. You know, you see something military like that, and and you're going to follow it. I'm a kid on a bicycle. I lived in the middle of nowhere. All right? When a helicopter comes over, military helicopter comes over during wartime, I'm going to go see where it's going. And that's where it went. And we all did. We were just a big pack of kids riding our bikes following that thing. Well, kids probably followed this garrison. People probably followed this garrison. You think about the days that they lived in. I mean, what kind of exciting stuff ever happened? I mean, really. No TV. No 24-hour 7 news. No streaming content. Didn't have phones you could stare at 24 hours a day. They had none of those things. All they had was dirt stuff and and sheep and stuff cows and so garrison troops comes through town man you're going to follow that thing they probably followed them out and they probably witnessed what happened and so word got back to the king your garrison got consumed by fire somebody went and told him so what does he do now think about this for a second. What does he do? You, you're, you sent 51 men in a show of strength. 51. They go to arrest this one guy and get consumed by fire. So, now think about this for a second. This is what happens. He hears about it completely disregards the discipline of God over his decision, right? Sends out another 51 men to go and do exactly the same thing. Now, that was an informed decision. That wasn't an ignorance. That wasn't just, oh, where'd those guys go? I'll send another group to see where they went and maybe get Elijah this time. It wasn't that. It was... He knew what happened. He was aware that he lost 51 men to fire falling from heaven. Obviously, the act of God. Obviously, the judgment of God. Obviously, the discipline of God on his show of strength. And what does he do? He doubles down. He sends another 51. Completely disregards the discipline of God. So, the first company, all right. So, maybe the guy said something rude. Who knows? We'll send another. Maybe he wasn't forceful enough. 
Maybe he said the wrong thing. Maybe there was something else that happened. So let's send another company of men out there to arrest Elijah. Now, think about how foolish it is. And I hope you got that from my tone of voice when I was describing what happened. Think about how foolish it is to disregard the discipline of God. And yet we do. That there are things that take place in our life that are obviously God trying to get our attention. But instead of hearing that, or instead of receiving that, instead of making a change, instead of doing something differently than what we're going to do, we double down and continue down the same path with the same strategy that we had before we received that discipline. That ultimately is just self-defeating and self-destructive. And I hope you can see that. I hope you can see that in our lives, that by the mercy of God, He will discipline His children. That's a favor to us. It's a sign of His love. It's like when a parent disciplines their child. They love their child. A parent who does not discipline their children hates their children. That's a fact. And if you've ever seen kids that are undisciplined by their parents, it is apparent that that parental figure in their life hates them. Can't be bothered. And I didn't just make that up. The Bible says that. So if God loves us, which He does, cares for us, which He does, wants the best for us, which He does, then He goes about the process in our life of disciplining us so that we can learn and we can grow and we can change. So when He disciplines us, we see it, we hear it, whatever means He uses, I can't tell you what He's going to do in your life, I can tell you ways that He's disciplined me in my life. He, dis- he disciplines me through people sometimes. You know, He'll send somebody to talk to me. And if I hear it the first time, the conversation usually is nicer than if I don't hear it. Because the second time, the conversation is usually not as nice. Sometimes I'm disciplined through circumstance. That something takes place and I, I know that's the hand of God on that. I'm not really wondering about it. I just know that it is. And so I'm either going to receive that or I'm not. Might be the scriptures. I read something and man, it just pierces my heart when I read it and I know that's God speaking to me. It's conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm either going to receive that and hear that or I'm not. So, and there's other ways too. However God chooses to do that in your life, I don't know. But we put ourselves in a position where if we'll hear Him, then good. We have the opportunity to change and grow and become. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in being corrected at all. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing for our life. 
It's something good that God does in our lives to, to help us so that we can grow. If we were perfect to start with, we wouldn't even need a Savior, would we? But we're not. And we need a Savior, and it's part of the, the work of that Savior in our life to grow us and help us to become something more. So perfection isn't something that we have, and perfection isn't something that we walk with, and perfection isn't something that's a part of our lives. It can't be. Because we need a Savior. It can't be because we need somebody to, to help us. And so understanding that is understanding that the process of change involves correction. And really the, the only hindering factor in this process is our own hearts, our own lives. What do you think stops you from, what do you think stops a person from listening and changing? What do you think? Pride. And you can, you can say stubbornness if you want, but that's a form of pride. It's you saying, I'm going to keep doing this, I don't care. And I think sometimes we get this weird idea in our head, like if we get corrected, we get prideful about it and ashamed. That's the devil. That's the devil in our life that it produces that kind of shame. And you think about how in the past maybe there were those that shamed you for being wrong. Well, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. Everybody's wrong. And the real thing you got to do is learn from the mistake. The real thing you got to do is be humble enough to learn from the mistake, either your mistake or the mistakes of others, but to learn from the discipline of God so that you can grow, so that you can change, so that things can be better. That's what really needs to happen. You don't want to be that person that just has to be beaten like a mule about everything. Everything. Say everything, every decision, everything that needs to happen. You don't want to be that person. It's okay to just change. It's okay. It's okay to just say, I was wrong. I need to do this differently. It's okay. And let that change happen in your life. Because it's kind of interesting that when you think about fighting God, you know, there is nothing to be gained by fighting God. Nothing. You have everything to lose. And anybody that knows anything about fighting, you know, this is a little secret for you. Not that I know anything about it, but I'm going to tell you a secret. you got to know which ones to avoid. God is a good fight to avoid. And that's just a little secret, a little tip. That if you got somebody bigger and stronger and faster and smarter, infinitely so, avoid that one. Just avoid it. Especially when you know his motivations are pure and loving and good. And he wants the best for you. 
There's no reason to fight him. Zero. And so there's nothing to be gained by fighting God. You think about this king. He didn't like what Elijah had to say. And so he's going to show him. He's going to show him. Well, there's nothing to be gained by that. It doesn't change the Word of God over him. It doesn't change the outcome. It doesn't change what's about to happen. It doesn't change the prophetic Word that brings it to pass. It doesn't change God's mind. It doesn't change anything about His circumstance whatsoever. But that's the nature of pride and that's the nature of stubbornness and that's the nature of of the things that we've been talking about. They're senseless. They're completely senseless. They don't make sense. And so, and so here he goes. He goes through this process and, and I hate to be his troops because they're the ones paying the price ultimately for his pride, aren't they? And yet, isn't that what troops do? Isn't that what troops have always done? Paid the price for the arrogance of their leaders? Yeah. So, he marches them off. Go get them. Going to show him. We're going to intimidate everybody. We'll intimidate the whole town. We'll intimidate everybody in the countryside. And we're going to go get him. And we're going to show everybody who's strongest. Consumed by fire. Gone. Burned up in an instant. Oh, yeah? Alright, well, I'm going to send out 51 more. And we're going to go get him. We're going to intimidate everybody. And we're going to show him. So they sends out a second group of 50 plus a leader to go get him who is as prideful and rude as the first ones. And so Elijah calls down fire from heaven and they're consumed. That's two groups of 51 that get consumed. Now, if there was any doubt after the first one that he didn't understand what was going on, he gets word about the second one. Uh, King, they're not coming back. Elijah's not coming. They got consumed by fire too. In the same way that the first group got consumed by fire, Elijah called down fire from heaven and boom, they were gone. So, if there was any doubt, there was a misunderstanding on the first one. If there was any doubt, well, maybe they just were rude, or you know, maybe there was some you know thing that happened, or we'll send out another one, whatever. If there was any doubt, that's gone. Because evidently, by the second group being consumed, the problem was the king's order. The problem's the king. The problem's his pride. The problem's his arrogance. The problem is his refusal. His refusal to receive and accept God's Word. To receive and accept His discipline. That's the problem. Another interesting note about this, kind of interesting how when we are in rebellion, when we are in disobedience, when we find ourselves fighting God, there's always collateral damage. And that's kind of interesting to me. Because people get hurt. And it's usually people close to us. And people that care about us. 
And people are looking out for us. And people that want the best for us. And that's something to keep in mind when we ignore God. It's something to keep in mind when we decide we're going to just go forward in pride. Because I look back in my life at times when I've ignored something that God's told me or I've ignored what He's led me into or I've ignored the things that, that, that He has for me or the things He instructs me to do or I ignored His Word. People get hurt. People in my family. People around me. People in church. People get hurt. My friends get hurt. And that's just no good. I don't know the king cared about any of these soldiers. I have no idea. But man, they were paying the price. They were paying the price. Trying to carry out his will. Trying to carry out and walk in what he wanted them to do. They were paying the price for it. And so we get a third. So we get a third group. He sends them out. Can you see this as anything but arrogance? Right? Group one, consumed by fire. Group two, consumed by fire. Group three, alright, go get them boys. Gonna go intimidate everybody. Gonna intimidate him, 51 guys, to arrest one guy. We're gonna, we're gonna make a big show of it. We're gonna intimidate everybody. Go get him! Now, if you're part of that 50, group of 50, 51 that was going out to get him, the third group, you're going to be very excited about what you're doing? Because you know the first two groups got consumed by fire. You already know that. So they had gone in the same assignment. So two assignments had gone out before you. None of them came back. Your turn. How you feel about that? You feeling good? I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling good at all about this. So you got 50 guys and a leader, 51 guys heading to get Elijah. I doubt they were very intimidating. I doubt it. I doubt they were marching with the same pride and purpose that the first group had marched with or even the second group. In fact, I bet they were just heading, dreading getting there and speaking to Elijah. That'd be my guess. I could be wrong, but that would be my guess is that they just really weren't that into it and they were a little bit fearful. And so the Bible tells us 51 more. Now the second guy, like I said, he was still prideful and even more demanding. He told Elijah to come down at once. Alright, so he didn't just say come down. He said come down at once. Like now. Consumed by fire. Okay, third group show up the commander of the group a wiser man than the first two approached Elijah on his knees and the Bible said he begged him to spare his life that's a little bit different do you see the humility there the king wasn't humble. The king was still prideful. 
The king was still in rebellion. The king was still in disobedience. The king was still rejecting the Word of God. The king was still disrespecting the prophet of God. The king was still trying to show who was boss. The king was still trying to present a show of strength, but the leader of this group, of this garrison, the Bible tells us he was on his knees and begging, begging for mercy. And that is the proper response. And that was the proper response from the beginning. Was a humility, a humility, and a seeking after mercy. In the day that we live in, in the dispensation that we have in the gospel, we serve a God of mercy. It's who He is. And we need to play to that. In other words, when we find ourselves in opposition to God, to His will and His purpose or His plan, to His will for our lives, when we find ourselves in opposition to that, we need to humble ourselves and receive His mercy. It's His desire that we live in His mercy. It's His desire that we live in His grace. It's His desire that we live in His love. And there's no reason to depart from that. And the real question isn't whether or not He'll give us mercy or grace or love because He's pouring that out all the time. The real question is, will we find ourselves in it or will we find ourselves in rebellion? Will we find ourselves you know, finding life in that grace and mercy and love, or we find ourselves in abject disobedience and pride. Because, I mean, if you come right down to it, if I ask most Christians, are you going to save yourself? Christians say, no. That's Jesus. You know, I have a Savior, Jesus. Well, right. Right. That's correct. Good answer. Good answer. All right, next question. When He's working with you in your life to see change, when He's working with you in your life to see growth, when He's working with you in your life to see you mature and become something more than you are, when that is the process that you're in, why fight God? If you could have saved yourself, you would have, but you couldn't. You need Him. And you recognize you need Him. If you could change yourself, you would, but you can't. And you need to recognize that you need Him. You need to recognize that the process you're in is for salvation. It's the same process that you're in now for change and growth and maturity. It is all the same process that we find ourselves in. And it is in that process that we need to find the same humility that accepts Jesus as Savior. They accept Him as Savior today for my life and for changing my life. They accept Him for Savior today to help me be the parent that He's called me to be. To help me be the man or woman that He's called me to be. To help me to be the disciple that He's called me to be. To help me to be the teacher that He's called me to be. To help me to be whatever it is He's called us to be. 
He's the Savior. And He's still in that process with us of change and growth. And if we can approach Him with the same humility that we approach Him for the big salvation or whatever you want to call it, well, it's the same salvation that still is redeeming our lives. Even the little things of our lives and the big things. We can find that same humility. We can find that same mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. Because that's where it is. So this commander, he came to a revelation that I pray we all get tonight. That we get it more. That the place of safety, the place of peace, the place of success, the place of victory in our life is a place of humility. Because that's where mercy is. And that's where grace is. And that's where the love of God is. Is a humble heart. Jesus knew that. He got it. He taught it. He modeled it. He lived it. He showed us the way. We just have to believe it. Everybody wants salvation to be some moment in our life, but it's not. It's not. And to satisfy that need, I used to be part of a a religious organization that I, I was tested three different times. Tests that were three hours, six hours, longer. And the way that they got around that is they had a particular way of understanding salvation where they say, well, salvation is both instantaneous and progressive. Well, which is it? Both. And all I want to say is is that it is what it is. And that's why we don't even describe it that way. And I don't know when my spiritual birthday is, and I don't care. Okay? That's why we talk about knowing Jesus and finding life in Him and with Him. Because we're in a process of growth. We're in a process of becoming. We're in a process. We're, we're being discipled and, and we're being grown up in the Spirit. We're in that process. Becoming more like Jesus. We're in that process of knowing Him more. We're in that process of our life changing. And because we're in that process, we need to understand it in the same terms. I can't do it myself. I never could and I never will. And just accepting that. Because there's the place of mercy. Finding ourselves in that humble place. Like this leader did. And he was a good leader. He saved his men's lives by doing this. He saved his own life by doing this. 
And I want to encourage you that if you can be humble and you can allow God to gently change you and your life, you're going to save yourself a lot of grief. And you're also going to save the people around you a lot of grief too. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing, actually. So what happened to the king? He died. Just like God said he would. After this third guy went to Elijah, Elijah, the angel of the Lord, said to Elijah, you can go with him now. Everything's going to be all right. And so the angel of the Lord released Elijah to go with this particular man who had humbled himself on his knees and begged for the life of him and his men. And so Elijah went with him, saw the king, and here's something that's really interesting. Reiterated with the king that he was going to die, and no one laid a hand on him. said what he was going to say and he left and that king died because that was the word of the Lord so I encourage you to let that word speak to you just let it speak to you right now where you're at And I pray God speaks to you about this idea of the process that we're in. Let Him show you that. Let Him reveal that to you. Let Him reveal the the nature of who God's called us to be in humility and, and humble, a humble spirit. Jesus, lowly, meek, humble, he showed us the way. He really did. He showed us the way. He understood it. Because this is where it's at. This is where the power is. This is where the change is and the growth is. This is the place that we get to know God better. We get closer to Him. This is the place where our lives really change. We become more like Jesus. This is the, this is the place. There is a God on Westcott. There is a God in Syracuse. And He cares about you. And all I can say is don't fight Him. Don't fight him. Thank you, God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your long suffering. Because you are long suffering. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. 
give you thanks tonight that you you care for us beyond what we can even understand. You love us with a love that is greater than we can probably ever know, at least while we're living this life. So God, I pray that in us would be created a, a humble heart, heart of humility, that God, we can respond to you in a way that matters. I pray your word would have its effect in us. Your word would instruct us. Your word would inspire us. I pray, God, that we would respond to your word tonight. Give you thanks for speaking to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. And they all see a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.